Well, if you do have your Bibles, can you turn to 1 John chapter 4, please? And as we prepare our hearts and minds to receive from the Lord's word this morning, let us pray. Let us seek him and ask that he would, by the Spirit, open our eyes to see his goodness and love. Father, here we are before your word, looking to you as the only one who can help us to see and understand who you are and what you're like. Father, even now, this morning, with the saints here, I ask that you would by the Spirit, because of Jesus, open our eyes to see your goodness and your love, that we would know your love, know the heights and the depths and the widths and the width and the breadth of the love of Christ. And even though it surpasses knowledge, O oh Lord God, we ask that you would help us to see, that you would tear away anything that hinders our understanding of who you are, And that your glory and your goodness would shine like the sun at noonday. We pray, O God, that you would have mercy on us and help us. For we need you in all things. Amen. When it comes to knowing and doing the will of God for you as an individual or for us as a particular church, as the title of the sermon says, Relationship always comes before responsibility. Always. And because of this, if you've ever wondered why God isn't using you more, maybe you wonder, wish that he would use you more, the answer is always in reference to your relationship with him. Your relationship with him is central and pivotal. It's the very first thing. It's the thing that matters most to him. As I've said before, God isn't con- is concerned about us doing something, uh, him, sorry, him doing something through us as he is with him doing something within us. God is concerned with us, and yet so often we get concerned about what, we, what God is doing through us. What God, what can we do? What, what are we to be doing? Well, the first thing that we have to understand is that so often the problem is it's not God, it's us. And the problem with us is that we so often get caught up in the things of this world. We so get caught up in our lives, in the day-to-day, and all the grind of life, and the the things that are screaming at us. And God, a lot of times, isn't this true? He can be kind of like peripheral. Oh yeah, we can't forget him. So we, maybe in the morning we say a prayer, or we read a couple verses of the Bible, or whatever it is we do, and then we just get on going. But the very most important thing in all of life, that all of life should be an act of worship. All of life should be lived unto the Lord. Whether we eat or we drink, whatever we do, we do the glory of God. Whatever you lay your hands to, do it, do it as unto the Lord. So it should be an offering as unto him. It's a way of living. But it's not going to happen. We're not going to do that unless we, in our own hearts and in our own minds, know the love of God. And you know why that is? It's because we are, we are responders. We will only love God to the, to the degree to which we know he loves us. That's how we live. We love, if we think of his love toward us as little, we will love him in response very little. And often God doesn't use us, and he isn't revealing to us ministry in, in, 
and opportunities because we're so caught up with our own stuff. If you recall into the church in Ephesus, what Jesus said to them, they, they did several things right. But once the thing that he had against that ch- church was that they had lost their first love. And he said that if you do not repent and restore that, do you remember what he was going to do? He was going to remove their lampstand. Now, that's pretty significant. They would have no light, no ministry. They would just become, eventually become a dead church. And that's what happens. We will become dead. Our ministry will be dead. There will not, God will not be using us if we do not keep central things central. And that is our relationship with God and knowing who he is and how he's loved us. As it says in 1 John 4.19, in this particular passage, which I've mentioned so often, we love, why? It says, because God first loved us. That's why we love. And so we're called to love, but there's no way you're going to love. There's no way you're going to grow in that relationship. You can't sit here this morning and say, you know what? What I need to do is I need to love God. I need to love God more because the Bible says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I need to get after that. I need to get loving God. Well, good luck with that. You'll just become nothing but frustrated and frustrated and frustrated at your lack of love for God. If you want to grow in your love for God, what you have to do is you have to grow in your understanding of his love for you. Because we will only love him in proportion to how much we believe he loves us. Never forget that. So what we have to do is we have to come to the place where we understand his love. And because of this, we need... As we turn to 1 John chapter 4, we read in verses 7 through 8. If you look at 1 John 4, starting at verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. Love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. And why? Listen to the response here. Because God is Love. That's a very significant statement right there. God is love. For the Bible to say that God is love is to make a statement that is incredibly bold and marvelous all at the same time. And why do I say that? Well, we live in a world, we live in a world where babies are murdered, eagles mutilate little bunnies, Wolves tear apart small deer. Humans behead other humans. And that is only to give you a small sampling of what takes place on the earth. Now, when when I say the statement, God is love, and I focus on his love, and if I could cause your attention to focus on the love of God, you know, some of the things that happen before we can ever do that, before we can ever understand it, there are all these screaming distractions at that statement. Because we live in a certain kind of a world. And the Apostle John was not ignorant. He was not ignorant of the world we live in. He knew of the evils, the struggles, the horrible events that happen in the world. He was at a, lived in a time when persecution and, and martyrdom was very common among the Christians. He was not ignorant. But he said God is love, knowing full well the world he lived in. 
And sometimes the greatest hindrance to us believing that truly God is love, for you to say that with conviction, you have these haunting questions. Yes, I know the Bible says that, but boy, Dean, have you read the news lately? Because here's something else. Not only is he a God of love, we know that he's a God of power and that he can change things. And if he's a God of love and a God of power and he doesn't change things, then ouch, that's a hard one to swallow. I have a difficult time with that. It creates a tension that we have to reconcile. We have to reconcile and understand what's going on because if we don't, sometimes we'll hear these words and we struggle to believe them because we see with our eyes things that are taking place and we can't reconcile the two. Is God a God of love? And because this is such an important issue to deal with, I think there are some obstacles that we have to somehow deal with in a clear way before we can grasp and lay a hold of what he's saying here, that truly God is, we can say with conviction, God is a God of love. Some of the, sometimes what we have to do is deal with those questions and those issues. And so what I'm going to do this morning for this short period of time in this particular point is instead of getting into the, talking about why God is a God of love, I want to kind of do it from a different angle, and I want to talk about some of these issues and reasons why God is a God of love in light of some of these evils. Now, of course, this is a massive subject, and there's a lot to be said, and I'm not going to say nearly all that can be said. But I want to give us some good, solid reasons as to why God is a God of love, even though there's wicked and evil in the world. First of all, the reason God doesn't put an end to all the wicked and the evil in the world instantly, see, that's it, done with it, don't know more, is this. He is allowing us to visually see, feel, and experience how evil, wicked, disgusting, horrific, and brutal sin and death really are. And sin and death, by the way, they came into the world through man. Man's sin brought death. And now we get to visually see its impact. And if you live long enough, you will soon come to realize that this life is not a bunch of little kittens, daisies, and fluffy clouds with a soundtrack in the background. That gets smashed to smithereens rather quickly. It has grotesque and wicked features of sin and death embedded within it all throughout creation. So when you see loved one suffer through terminal cancer and die, When you see another Christian being beheaded by ISIS, and when you see the ugliness of sin and death in your own heart, it comes home, folks. It gets really close to home. You should grow in your hate for sin and death. God wants you to see it for as ugly as it is, and he wants you to hate it, to despise it. We are people who are always being lured towards sin. It's tempting for us, very tempting. It's only until we feel and see the death that it brings and we can taste it and we we see it with our eyes that we begin to hate it. We hate it because when we see it and how ugly it is, we want it gone. And you know what else it should do? When we see God wants us to see it, he wants us to, to, to hate it. He wants us to see it for all that it is, all that it's ugliness and grossness. Because you know what you'll do? You'll tend to put, not put your hope and trust in this world, but in the world to come. The resurrection is your hope. 
And you know what you'll do with this world? You'll fall in love with this world and the things of this world, and you will start to latch onto this world. And often even Christians start to make this world their hope. But I'll tell you what sin and death will do. It'll slap your hands. You watch the evils and the horrific things happening in this world, and you will start, your hope will no longer be in this world and the things in it. Your hope will be in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's a lot of times what it takes for God to keep us fixed on the hope that we have in Christ. Hope in Christ. Your hope is not here. Your hope is not now. Your hope is not in this world. Your hope is in life that is to come. Jesus was resurrected from the dead and conquered, and that is our hope. That one day, when you look out and you see the the horrific and the nasty and the wicked and the evil, and you see that, you should hate it. And you should, with a hate for that, this is what happens when you sin. This is what sin does. You want to see a grotesque picture of sin? Just read your news. And you should turn to the Lord your God and you say, Oh, God, have mercy. I long for the resurrection. Come, Lord Jesus. I can't wait. My hope is not in this life, nor the things in this life. I should not cling to this world, and I should not try to make this my treasure. Oh, no, if this is your treasure, oh, how sad. And God has a great way of dealing with that. The sin and evil in this world should be enough to slap your hands and say, Stop it. Don't look to this world, but look to the promise and the hope that is in Christ and the resurrection and what he'll bring. That's, that's one of the reasons why God has sin and evil. It's a loving act to keep us hoping in Christ and seeing this, the evil of sin. The second reason why God, the God of love, the God who is love, can allow wickedness and evil in this world is because he's going to make every wrong right. There is not one wicked thing that ever takes place in this world that will not go unpunished or undealt with. Not one. Hebrews 9.27 says it is destined for man to die once and then the judgment. If there was no final judgment, if that was not true, if if the fact that God will not justly deal out what needs to be dealt out, we might have a case against him. We might, we might actually be up to bring an accusation against them. God, I don't think you're very just. Because a lot of this stuff needs a reckoning, does it not? There, something needs to happen here. All these injustices, something must give. Like, okay, I, there has to be a dealing. There has to be a reckoning. But the world likes to bring an accusation against God because it views life from birth to death as the full story. They look at someone being born. They look at someone dying. They see that, and that's the context in which they look at it, and they see evil, and they see wickedness, and it's true. And they see that, and they say, if there's a good God, then, then bam, how he is, he is not good. How could he be good and allow this to happen? Let me tell you how. There will be perfect justice. That's how. We know we're not like those who see life and death, and that's the full story. That's like a little chapter, a small one. Because this life, in light of of eternity, it's but a speck. This is such a short time. This is not the full story. This is a small chapter. We know that everything in this life will be dealt with and dealt with perfectly with perfect justice. 
There isn't a single drop of blood or sinful thought that God will not deal with with absolutely perfect justice. Justice will be served in a way that no human mind could ever imagine. You're going to see God in the last day, God judge all things in every act, and he's going to judge in such a just and awesome way that you will fall on your face and worship and say, I did not even fathom how my God could justly serve and make every wrong right. Wow. Wow. He is a God of love. But in the meantime, there's a third reason. Why God can be a God of love and allow evil and wickedness in this world. It is because even the worst of evils are always being used by God for good, even now. The worst evil that ever happened, and what makes evil evil, is when you've got somebody who's good and an unrighteousness is performed upon them. So the more good and righteous someone is, And the greater, the more heinous the crime, the more evil and wicked that is. It's not very evil and wicked when two wicked people point a gun at each other's head and pull the trigger. We almost say there, okay, kind of, there's justice was served for both of them. But the worst evil that ever happened in the world was when the most innocent and righteous man who ever lived was taken by evil and wicked hands abused, beaten, maligned, rejected, despised, whipped, mocked, betrayed, falsely accused, and then crucified. But what God did in allowing this to happen was to bring the salvation of the world. God was saving, delivering, rescuing, and redeeming the abusers, the beaters, the maligners, the rejectors, the despisers, the mockers, the betrayers, the accusers, and the selfish in the act that they were performing. Only a God, the God of love, could do such a thing. Unbelievable. With our God of love, evil and wickedness is always being flipped on its head. And it ends, the evil and the wickedness ends up destroying itself. Satan's devising a plan and a scheme, and he thinks he has Jesus right where he needs him, and he's saying, glory, this is a great day. He didn't realize he was slitting his own throat. That's what God does. This is why the wicked Muslims who destroy Christians by beheading them will find God destroying them through their own evil. And giving the Christians an award that could never be imagined. Kind of like pouring water on an oil fire. I don't know if you've ever done that or seen that. Wrong thing to do. It just spreads. You've just spread the fire. It causes it to multiply. Even as we speak, God is converting Muslims at an unprecedented rate. In northern Africa alone, and I've told some of you this uh, before, according to a leading Muslim cleric, 16 million Muslims every year are converting to Christ. That's just up in northern Africa. And he, this Muslim cleric is very concerned, as he should be. Because God will always make sure that the act of evil brings about his intended good. And in his wisdom and power, he actually uses the evil to produce that good. And so when you intend it for evil, God uses it for good. 
And, of course, that wonderful story of Joseph and his brothers. And that's exactly what he told them. They devised evil. They planned evil. And all that evil was doing nothing but working the good. And that's what Joseph said. Evil is like fertilizer for good. Because God, the God of love, works things this way. And this is even, even the good in our own lives. There are a couple other reasons that I'm going to mention really quickly here. Just, just state them, because I don't have time to elaborate on them. But there are several reasons why God is a God of love, and we, that we live in a world where there's wicked and evil, and why he remains the God of love even though they're there. And there are three scripture texts I'm going to read that talk about its effect and impact on us as Christians even. The famous one, Romans 8, 28, we all know this one, right? It says that God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, that we might be conformed into the image of his son. He works all things, all the evil and the wicked things. He works them for good that we might be conformed in the image of his son. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 declares, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So why do we not lose heart? Through trial, through tribulation, through suffering, through difficulty, through the wickedness and the the hard things that come? Because what they're working for us is this eternal weight of glory that's beyond comparison. It can't be compared. And then there's Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, which says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you, listen this, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, and this we remember, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's not good. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So what do we conclude? God will work all evil for our good. Use it to discipline us, So that we learn to love righteousness and hate sinfulness. And reward us for it in the end. Truly he's a God of love. Who's taking even all the wicked and the evil. And he's using it for good. 
I'd like us now to turn our attention toward ourselves for a moment and think about the love of God toward us in light of who we are. Back in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And a good complementary passage to this is Romans 5.8, which declares, God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Clearly, God is love, because what does God do? God loves the unlovely. The unlovely. It isn't that the object which God loves is beautiful and delightful and precious and saying, oh, how lovely. Oh, I love that. And therefore, you're so lovable that I'm just going to love you. In both these texts, it's revealed to us that God is love. And he loves while we don't love him. When we don't love him. We are sinners rebelling against him. You can hate me, you can despise me, you can, you can kill me, you can do whatever you want to me, God says, but you know what? I can love you. And you're like, how could you do that? Because I am love. It's my nature to love. I don't love because the lovability of the object. I love because that's who I am. That's the God we serve, the God who loves. Even the unlovely. It's his nature to. Just think of how often we love. Do you find it easy to love the unlovely? No. Our love is fickle. Our love is, is transient. Our love is just not like his in so many ways. We love the lovely. We love the lovable. We have a hard time loving the unlovely. Except, here's a condition, if they're really connected to us and we have other reasons why we love them. For example, parents. Parents, God gives us a wonderful example. He gives us children. And you realize as parents, you, you, you love your children. And your children aren't always lovable. They're not always delightful. They're not always those just little cute little things that you want to love. Sometimes you want to strangle them. But you still love them. And you give yourself for them. And it's an amazing picture that God gives us as parents to see your children and to know, oh, this is, this is kind of... Kind of like God's love. And I only say kind of because you remember Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13? He calls us evil parents. He says, if you who are evil, he's talking to the parents now, if you parents who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children when they ask, how much more will your heavenly Father give this Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He says, how much more? If you... In comparison, he wants to compare our love to our kids. He says, you and you guys, you're evil. And if you know how to give good gifts, how much more me, who is love? I was reading a book this week about God's love, and in it the author talked about the love he had for his newborn son. And he's just overwhelmed by this love, and he, just, he was just overcome with this love for this child that he had, and he couldn't, couldn't believe how much he loved this child. And then he read Luke 11, with the passage I just read. And this is what he says after reading this passage in Luke 11. 
said, the realization of the magnitude of the Father's love for me, that God loved me much more than I loved my new son, was emotionally overpowering. He was driving, actually, to the hospital to see his new son. And he pulls over on the side of the road, and he says, I wept in my new understanding in the Father's love for me. Because it's how much more. What he realized was this. Just think of how much you've ever loved someone, a child, if you have a child, or anybody, if you've ever loved anybody. And, and what Jesus is saying here, even in Luke 11, is that you get a glimpse and you get an understanding of what it's like to love, but you have no idea the love the Father has. You have no idea because it's so much more. How much more the God who is love, the God who is perfect in his love, loves you. It's a wonderful thing to, to contemplate and to think about. Because just, ima- just flip it around from a child's perspective for a moment. Just imagine the most amazing and loving father ever in the world. Think about how loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, faithful, and good he would be. Just think, imagine the absolutely perfect father. Imagine that for a moment. And as you do, get a glimpse of what God is like. His discipline is perfect. His words are powerful. His protection or provision are flawless. And as you do, you start to get a glimpse of what your heavenly father is like. The most amazing heavenly father ever. But here's what happens. Sometimes our Heavenly Father and His love are challenged. And they're not just challenged like I started off earlier. They're challenged by the evil and wickedness in the world. You know what they can be challenged by? The Word of God, Scriptures. You're like, hey, Dean, yeah, it's cool what you're saying. Man, I read my Bible and I've read some pretty nasty judgments, some destruction, some earth-swallowing people, some you know, going in and annihilating people and all this stuff. It's like, there's some pretty, there's some Bible verses that really challenge this idea and make me struggle with this whole concept. This idea that God is love, this loving Heavenly Father. Man, I don't even need the evil in the world. I just got Bible verses, or I've got a lot of stories I've read in there. Just go look at the children of Israel as they walk through the wilderness. Woo! I don't know, that's a tough one to reconcile. But you know what we have to realize? is that in Scripture, context is everything. Because if we don't see all the hard warnings, the judgments, and the destruction in its proper light, we can really struggle with the idea of God being a God of love, this loving Heavenly Father. Recently, I read through the book of Jeremiah, and there's a lot of judgment there, a lot of judgment. There's a lot of woes. There's a lot of horrible things coming down. And it's stated sometimes in a very brutal way. Just a quick sampling of what this is like. Jeremiah chapter 34, 20. God tells Jeremiah what he's going to do to the wicked and perverse people in Jerusalem who have forsaken the Lord and went after all kinds of wickedness. He says, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth. Your dead bodies are going to, I'm going to give them as food to, to, for, to animals to eat, birds and animals to eat. 
And in other places, he talks about your mothers eating their own children. You're like, ooh, loving, right? Woo. But think this through. If we understand the context, and this is what I'm going to help us to see, he really is loving. And here's why. What's easily missed here in this context is Israel's condition. Israel is, she's in bad shape, very bad shape. She is constantly and continually whoring after these other gods, constantly rebelling against God, doing their own thing, in utter wickedness. And you just, if you see the picture, Isaiah paints a really good picture of what's happening in Israel. And all the, God says, you, you guys are whoring after these other gods after, uh, over, uh, under every other tree. How you treat the poor, how you treat one another, you guys are like Sodom and Gomorrah. You guys are perverse. You're wicked. You're evil on every layer. He just goes on and on to talk about what they're like. And yet God, what's he doing? He's still calling out to them. God, and, and the words that he's pronouncing, he says, he's saying all these horrible woes and judgments are upon her. But you know why he does it? Listen to why he does this. He's saying this. Just to get a little, here's a common refrain that goes through Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 18, 7. It says, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck it up or to pull it down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I'll bring upon it. A similar one in Jeremiah 36.3 says, Perhaps the house of Judah will hear of all the calamity which I plan to bring on them. In order that every man will turn from his evil way, then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Six times throughout Jeremiah, there's this refrain where God speaks through Jeremiah and says, I would, I would, I would forgive them if they would turn to me. So when we put this all together and understand what's going on, these people are hearing hard and horrible judgments, this wicked and perverse and twisted people, God's people. And do you know why he's saying all these things? He keeps heaping up, and he makes it harder and and worse and worse and worse, and he says, finally, then I'm going to completely destroy you. He's saying this, so why? So that they would turn. Hopefully they would turn and that he would forgive them and accept them. Just think of the love of this. If you had someone, you had a close relationship, say a marriage, because it's, it's a marriage between Israel and God, and that partner, like in, in, in the case of Hosea, where Gomer's going out, continually goes out and sleeping around constantly. And, and you're willing to take them back no matter how many times. You start to get like, are you kidding me? It can get so bad and so ugly. That, you know, that person needs to die for what they've done. And what does God say? If they would turn, I'd forgive them. In fact, you know what he says? After I, I judge them this way and they go outside, the city's burned and the people, all this horrible judgment comes. He has promised, I'm going to restore them. I'm going to bring them back and I'm going to cleanse them and I'm going to forgive them and I'm going to have this relationship with them. <laughs> are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? If you understand the context, that's absurd. That's crazy. God is speaking these hard words, and he keeps piling up the hard words, the hard words. It's not to speak hard words. He's not like, man, I love just dishing out this judgment. Let's just crank it up a few dials. It's so good to tell people I'm just going to have you eating your own kids, man. This is, this is great. 
and, uh, you know, we're going to have some real good action going on here. There's going to be fire and there's going to be destruction and there's going to be killing. It's this, this is, this is, this is something else. Now that's not, there actually is a sense in which some people, if they read the scriptures the wrong way and don't understand the context, you can begin to think that this is almost, is this what God's doing? Not even in the slightest. In all of this, you have a God of love who's willing to take that harlot back constantly. No matter how vile, no matter how far, no matter how wicked, no matter what she do, if she would turn, and I'm going to bring hard words and hard judgments and hard judgments, please turn. If you turn, I will take you back. That's the God we serve. That's the God of love. And if we don't understand it in the right context, and the picture's not uh, clearly drawn, we can get confused, and we can sometimes see and read these stories not fully understanding all that's going on. So a lot, you have to be careful even how you read those Old Testament stories. Because if you don't get the context right, all of a sudden even the devil will use the scriptures itself to pervert and twist your idea of who God is. God is a God of love. There's so much more. There's so much more that could be said about this whole topic. Even on the whole positive side of how God loves us continually. And sometimes we don't even hear or understand because we get so used to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Jesus has done for us. Looking at what he's done for us and how he's loved us. And God gave his only begotten son to a people who hated him and despised him. But there's nothing more important that we can do. Let me just challenge you as the people of God. I guarantee you, you do not understand the love of God as you ought to. Because, you know, as I use the benediction every week lately, that Ephesians passage, it says that Paul prays that they would know the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of Christ. And know what he says after that? That surpasses knowledge. So no matter how much you think you know, you're not there yet. Oh, that God would help us to see and know and understand his love. Even go through, walk through the grocery store. And while you walk through, begin to worship and look around at what he's given. The righteous and the unrighteous, the wicked who hate him. He feeds them. Not just feeds them uh, like a graham cracker. Look at the produce selection. They don't deserve any of this stuff. And this, the variety of smells, the variety of tastes, the variety of experiences, the variety of goodness that we have in life. You think of all the good little treasures he's given you. Sometimes you just go out one day and you ever smell the fresh air and you sold the lights and the smell of the air. That's a gift from God. Do you have any health at all? That's a gift from God. Can you walk? That's a gift from God. Do you have friends? That's a gift from God. Do you have anything? They're gift upon gift upon gift upon gift and we miss it. God is giving. God is pouring out his goodness toward us. And it's all around us. We just get so caught up, as I said at the very beginning in the call to worship, there might be a sliver in our finger, and we can't stop focusing on that sliver. But may we not, and we understand that even that sliver, God has it there for a good, loving reason. It's good that you get the slivers. It's good that you bang your toe. It's good that you whack your head on the corner of the, uh, of the shelf. These things are good, and there's many good things that come from them because a God of love is working it all out for your good. He's using it in wonderful, marvelous ways that can't be numbered. And, you know, I would guess that most of us here this morning are all too eager to be used by God. 
Oh, Lord, use me. We might even wonder, why is it that God doesn't seem to be revealing his work to me? You know, Dean, you talked last week about God revealing what, where he's at work. And man, I don't see anything. God not showing me a thing. I don't know what's going on. I sure wish God would use me more. Yet we have to realize that until our hearts are revived with the love of God in Christ, it will continue to be that way. God is more concerned about you and your relationship with him than he is about all these great things that you might like to do for him. That's the first thing that has to get right. We need God to help us to see his love all around us, to know his love deeply, to know the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because you know what? Here's something that you have to wrap your head around. No matter how good you think God is, he's better. No matter how loving you think God is, he's more loving. So cultivate in your heart and your mind and meditate on a, the God who is love and who's loved you. And I guarantee you the most transformative thing that could ever happen in your lives, you would leave here today transformed if the love of God ignited your heart and you understood and he could give you a glimpse of his goodness and love. It changes your life. To know that you're loved, to be filled up with his love, is to go and love. You will love when you know you're loved. And you're not going to love more. You're not going to be more of a loving person until you come to that place of knowing his love. And here's the crazy thing that happens. You, you, you start to know his love and experience his love and grow in your understanding of his love. And now all of a sudden, you begin to see him at work way more around you. He begins to use you more in other people's love to share his love. I, I just said no. Your life, people in your life, you begin to, he, he begins to reveal this to you. What he, where he's working more and more, and he uses you more and more to reveal his, his love to them. Let's not ever forget that, that the very nature and heart of who God is, God is love. And you could spend the rest of your life trying to plumb the depths of that, and you will not get to the bottom. It's a glorious journey of continuing to grow in the understanding of his love. And as you do, you will watch God use you more and more and more. Amen. Amen. Father, you are awesome. Oh, God, our Lord, you are amazing in how you've loved us and given to us. You give to us beyond measure. You've given us your only son. You've cleansed us. You've forgiven us. You feed us, you care for us, you help us, you guide us, you direct us, you uphold us, you nourish us, you strengthen us, you bless us in every way. Oh, Father, help us to see, help everyone here to see your goodness and your love. Help them to see around them. Give them eyes to see how you've loved them in the Lord Jesus Christ and who, what they have as a result of being in him. Help us to see, oh, Lord God. Help us to see and to know your love. And we know that when we know your love and see your love, we will love and you will use us in ways that are just more and more and more proof and evidence of your love. We praise you because you're good to us and give you thanks. Amen.